Chapter Five of *The Girl Who Had Nothing* by Mrs. C. N. Williamson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Allison. The landlady at Woburn Place. Joan had no difficulty in selling Titania for Lady John Bevan to a Swiss millionaire, the proprietor of a popular chocolate, who was disporting himself on the Riviera that winter. The yacht was to be delivered to him at Corsica, so that when the charming Miss Mordaunt and her chaperon steamed out of Nice Harbour, none of those who bade them farewell needed to know that Titania was to be disposed of. If they found out afterwards, it did not matter much to Joan. After her, the deluge. The girl had grown fond of Lady Joan Bevan, and could not bear to exchange her friend's warm affection and gratitude for contempt. Therefore she made up a pretty little fiction about an unexpected summons to America, and parted from Lady John with mutual regret at Ayakio. Joan's one grief in this connection was that Miss Mordaunt would scarcely be able to keep her promise to write from New York, but this grief was only one of the raindrops in that deluge which had to fall after the vanishing of the American heiress. If she had been prudent, Joan might have come out of this adventure with a small fortune after sending Tommy Mellis his share of the spoil. But she had been intoxicated with success, and had spent lavishly, as money came from the sale of the shares. She made a good commission on the deal with the yacht, which she sold for a somewhat larger sum than Lady John had asked. But where a less generous young person might have closed the episode with thousands, Joan Carthew had only hundreds. She had also, however, many smart dresses, some jewellery, and the memory of an exciting experience. Besides, the money she kept had been got easily, in addition to the joy of her adventure. It had been in the girl's mind, perhaps, that she might, as Miss Mordaunt, capture a fortune and a title. But in this regard, and in this only, the episode of the Titania was proved a failure. She had had plenty of proposals, to be sure, but the men who were rich were either too old, too ugly, or too vulgar to suit the fastidious young woman who called the world her oyster, and the titles laid at her feet were all sadly in need of the gilding which a genuine American heiress might have supplied for the sake of becoming a Russian princess or a French duchess. So Miss Mordaunt disappeared from the brilliant world where she had glittered like a star, and at about the same time Miss Joan Carthew, who had nothing to conceal, appeared at her old quarters in Woburn Place. She went back there for two reasons. Indeed, Joan had bought her experience of life too dearly to do anything without a reason. The first was because she wished to lie hid for a while, spending no unnecessary money until the twilight of uncertainty should brighten into the dawn of inspiration, and show her the next step on the ladder which she was determined to mount. The second reason was that the landlady, a quite exceptional person for a landlady, had been kind, and Joan desired to reward her. If the girl had not gone back to Woburn Place, her whole future might have been different, but she did go back, and arrived in the midst of a crisis. Since Joan had vanished some months ago, bad luck had come into the house, and finally opened the door for the bailiff. Joan found the landlady in tears, but to explain the fullness of the girl's sympathy, the landlady must be described. In the first place she was a lady, and she was young and pretty, though a widow. Her husband had been the Honourable Richard Fitzpatrick, the scapegrace son of a penniless Irish Viscount. Dishonourable Dick, as he was sometimes nicknamed behind his back, 
had gone to California to make his fortune, had naturally failed, but had succeeded in marrying an exceedingly pretty girl, an orphan, with ten thousand pounds of her own. He had brought her to England, had spent most of her money on the race-course, and would have spent the rest had it not occurred to him that it would be good sport to do a little fighting in South Africa. He had volunteered, and soon after died of enteric. Meanwhile, the Honourable Mrs. Fitzpatrick was at a boarding-house in Woburn Place, where the landlord and landlady were so kind to her that she gladly lent them several hundred pounds, not knowing yet that she had only a few other hundreds left out of her little fortune. Suddenly the blow fell. Within three days Marion Fitzpatrick learned that she was a widow, that her dead husband had employed the short interval of their married life in getting rid of almost everything she had, and that, her landlord and landlady being bankrupt, she could not hope for the return of the three hundred pound loan she had made them. It was finally arranged, as the best thing to be done, that she should take over the lease of the boarding-house, and try to get back what she had lost by running the establishment herself. Mrs. Fitzpatrick had just shouldered this somewhat incongruous burden, when Joan Carthew had been attracted to the house by the brightness of the gilt lettering over the door, and the pretty fresh curtains in the windows. Joan was nineteen, and Marion Fitzpatrick twenty-three. The two had been drawn to one another with the first meeting of their eyes. When, after a few weeks' acquaintance, the girl had been told the young widow's story, her interest and sympathy were keenly aroused, for Joan's heart was not hard except to the rich, most of whom she conceived to be less deserving, if more fortunate, than herself. Now, when she came back fresh from her triumphant campaign on the Côte d'Azur, to hear that things had gone from bad to worse, all the latent chivalry in her really generous nature was aroused. Joan was tall as a young goddess brought up on the heights of Olympus, instead of at a French boarding-school. Despite the hardships and wretchedness of her childhood, she was strong in body and mind and spirit, with the strength of perfect nerves and a splendid vitality. Marion Fitzpatrick, broken by disappointment and worn by months of anxiety, was fragile and white as a lily which has been bent by savage storms, and the sight of her small pale face and big sad brown eyes fired the girl with an almost fierce determination to assume the role of protector. "'I've got money,' she reflected, in mental defiance of the fate with whom she had waged war since childish days, "'and I can make more when this is gone.' I suppose I'm a fool, but I don't care a rap. I'm going to help Marion Fitzpatrick, and perhaps make her fortune, as I mean to make my own. But just for the present, mine can wait, and hers can't. Aloud she asked Marion what sum would tide her over present difficulties. Two hundred and fifty pounds, it appeared, were needed. Joan promptly volunteered to lend on one condition, but she was cut short before she had time to name it. "'Condition or no condition, you dear girl, I can't let you do it,' sobbed Marian. "'I'm perfectly sure I could never pay. I'm in a quicksand and bound to sink. Nobody can pull me out.' "'I can,' said Joan, "'and in doing it I'll show you how to pay me. You just listen to what I have to say and don't interrupt. When I get an inspiration I tell you it's worth hearing, and I've got one now.' What I want you to do is to give up trying to manage this house. You're too young and pretty and soft-hearted for a landlady, and you haven't the talent for it, though you have plenty in other ways, and one is to be charming. My inspiration will show you how best to utilize that talent. 
Then Joan talked on, and at first Marian was shocked and horrified. But in the end the force of the girl's extraordinary magnetism and self-confidence subdued her. She ceased to protest. She even laughed, and a stain of rose colour came back to her cheeks. It would be very awful and alarming, and perhaps wicked to do what Joan Carthew proposed, but it would be tremendously exciting and interesting, and there was enough youthful love of mischief left in her to enjoy an adventure with a kind of fearful joy, especially when all the responsibility was shouldered by another stronger than herself. The first thing to do towards the carrying out of the great plan was to get someone to manage the boarding-house in Mrs. Fitzpatrick's place. This was difficult, for competent and honest managers, male or female, were not to be found at registry offices like cooks. But Joan was, or thought she was, equal to this emergency as well as others. She sorted out from the dismal rag-bag of her early Brighton experiences the memory of a wonderful woman who had done something to make life tolerable for her when she was the forlorn drudge of Mrs. Boyle's lodging-house at twelve, Seafoam Terrace. This wonderful woman had been of one of two sisters who kept a rival lodging-house in Seafoam Terrace. The Mrs. Witt owned the place, consequently it was not improbable that they were still to be found there, after these seven years and as they had not always agreed together, it seemed possible that the younger Miss Wit, the clever and nice one, who had given occasional cakes and bull's-eyes to Joan in those bad old days, might be prevailed upon to accept an independent position with a salary in London. Joan had always promised herself that, when she was rich and prosperous, she would sweep into the house of her bondage like a young princess, and bestow favours upon little Minnie Boyle, whom she had loved. But Lady Thorndyke had not wished her adopted daughter to even remember the sordid past, and after the death of her benefactress, the girl had not until lately been in a position to undertake the role of fairy princess. Even now, to be sure, she was not rich, but she swam on the tide of success, and she had at least the air of dazzling prosperity. She dressed herself in a way to make Mrs. Boyle grovel, and bought a first-class ticket one Friday afternoon for Brighton. She took her seat in an empty carriage, and hardly had she opened a magazine when a man got in. It was George Gallon, and if he had wished to get out again on recognizing his travelling companion, there would not have been time for him to do so, as at that moment the train began to move out of the station. These two had not seen each other since the eventful morning when Joan had resigned her position as Mr. Gallon's secretary. She was not sure whether she were sorry or glad to see him now but the situation had its dramatic element. George spoke stiffly, and Joan responded with malicious cordiality. Knowing nothing of her identity with Grierson Mordaunt's brilliant niece, long pent-up curiosity forced the man to ask questions as to where she had been and what she had been doing. "'I have an interest in a London boarding-house, and I am going to Brighton to try and engage a manageress.' Joan deigned to reply, with a twinkle under her long eyelashes. "'I forgot that you would, of course, have kept on the old place at Brighton. I suppose you are going down for the weekend?' George admitted grimly that this was the case, and as Joan would give only tantalizing glimpses of her doings in the last few months, and seemed inclined to put impish questions about the office she had left, he took refuge in a newspaper. Joan calmly read her magazine, and not another word was exchanged until the train had actually come to a stop in the Brighton station. 
"'Oh, by the way,' the girl exclaimed then, as if on a sudden thought, "'it was I who got hold of those clarios I believe you had an idea of buying in so very cheap. "'I knew you could afford to pay well if you wanted them. "'One gets these little tips, you know, in an office like yours. "'That's why I snapped at your two pounds a week. "'Good-bye. I hope you'll enjoy the sea air at dear Brighton.' Before George Gallon could find breath to answer, she was gone, and he was left to anathematize the hand-luggage which must be given to a porter. By the time it was disposed of, the impertinent young woman had disappeared. Yet there is a difference between disappearing and escaping. Joan's little impulsive stab had made Gallon more her enemy than ever, and perhaps the day might come when she would have to regret the small satisfaction of the moment. But she had no thought of future perils and drove in the gayest of moods to Seafoam Terrace, where she stopped her cab before the door of number 12. There, however, she met disappointment. Her first inquiry was answered by the news that Mrs. Boyle had died of influenza in the winter, and the house had passed into other hands. The servant could tell her nothing of Minnie, but the new mistress called down from over the baluster, where she had been listening to the conversation, that she believed the little girl had been taken in by the two Mrs. Witt next door. Death had stolen from Joan a gratification of which she had dreamed for years. Mrs. Boyle could never now be forced to regret past unkindnesses to the young princess, who had emerged like a splendid butterfly from a despised chrysalis. But Minnie was left, and Joan had been genuinely fond of Minnie. She had therefore a double incentive in hurrying to the house next door. The nice Miss Witt herself answered the ring, and Joan had a few words with her alone. She would be delighted to accept a good position in London, and it was true that Minnie Boyle was there. She had taken compassion on the child, who was as penniless and friendless as Joan had been when last in Seafoam Terrace, but the elder Miss Witt wished to send the little girl to an orphanage, and the difference of opinion and Minnie's presence in the house led to constant discussion. "'The only trouble is,' said the kindly woman, "'that if I leave, Sister will send the little creature away.' "'She won't, because I shall take Minnie off her hands,' retorted Joan, "'with the promptness of a sudden decision. "'Do let me see the poor pet.' "'Minnie was nine years old, so small that she did not look more than six, "'and so pathetically pretty that Joan saw at once "'how she might be fitted into the great plan. "'She could do even more for the child now than she had expected to do.' and because the little one was poor and alone in the world, as she herself had been, Joan's heart grew more than ever warm to her playmate of the past. She made friends with Minnie, who had completely forgotten her, and so bewitched the child with her beauty, her kindness, and her smart clothes, that Minnie was enchanted with the prospect of going away with such a grand young lady. "'I used to know some nice fairy stories when I was very, very little,' said the child. "'This is like one of them.' "'I told you those fairy stories,' returned Joan. "'Now I am going to make them come true.'" End of chapter 5 Recording by Lynn Allison